0: Welcome to episode 10. Today we've got two sickly separated sequels with 1987's House 2 and 2013's Haunting in Connecticut 2. So whip out that Ouija board and summon a new demon pal because it's time for Frightful Failure! Seem very concerned about me.
1: Well, I can't tell if you're sick or if you're achieving an elongated orgasm. That's my that's my concern right now. Well, I mean,
0: once I tell you kind of what's going on, I think you'll see. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Okay. I've just been I've been drinking so much gamer bathwater.
1: <laughs> Good, yes, excellent. That's a sound investment. It was
0: it was delicious, uh, but I just feel. I mean, what's the opposite of thirsty? I feel just, uh, just quenched? so. Yeah, I feel just so quenched, uh, just overly full. I can't possibly drink anymore, and I've got like three more vials of it in the house. So I don't know what I'm gonna do with it.
1: Does it? Do you keep it chilled? Is that is that what you? She recommended
0: even... she she gave instructions and she recommended not to chill it that that could taint it. I mean it really is it's pure. The other thing is I have been blessing
1: various parts of my house with it, uh, just sort
0: of a little thank God, gentle
1: flick. Thank God you said house and not body. I assumed you were gonna say body and I was very not on well, board. I
0: wasn't with that. I wasn't there yet. Okay, <laughs> I didn't get to that part yet. Um, but uh, but uh, all right, okay. I'm gonna maintain myself, compose Appreciate myself. That. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, What are we doing here, Zach? Well, greetings everyone, and welcome to another episode of Frightful Failures. I am your ghost host with the most, Zach Romero. Joining me, as always, is your ghost host with the most, Tien Guignol. And Tien, we're right in the midst of of sequel season here. It's uh, come down from the mountaintop. God... ...themselves have decided that there's no money in original ideas anymore. It is only in sequels. We have Stranger Things 3, Doctor Sleep, Spider-Man Far From Home, Jumanji 3, this time with Dana DeVito. It's all about sequels. And with that in mind, we are right on the cusp, our fingers right on the pulse of media and film. So we thought, why not jump in on this trend ourselves? So we're jumping into not one, but two different sequel films without seeing the originals to discuss here... And um, I hated them both. So there, there's, there's your tease. Is your not mm. very good tease going into this yes, episode? Yes. Uh, yep. Spoiler alert. A little spoiler cast here.
0: Um, okay. Well, well, uh, I'd be happy to jump right in here. Now, uh, I think the interesting thing. I don't know if we want to give up the goose about kind of the relation between these two sequels, but perhaps calling them a sequel isn't quite doing them justice in terms of what they actually are and will uh, leave it up to you if you want to really kind of dive into exactly what makes them similar and dissimilar in terms of being sequels
1: well i would say that uh both of them have to do with ghosts kind of mm-hmm. maybe yes yes sort um, of. Mm-hmm. and then yes tn is absolutely correct both the films which I guess we should finally announce them, uh, 1987's House 2, the second story, and A Haunting Connecticut 2, Ghosts of Georgia, both have no real connections to their original films and are what they call brother or sister ideas to the original films which I think is a fancy way and an artsy way of saying these were unrelated films that we tacked these franchises onto in hopes to trick people and maybe get some more money out of this.
0: Yes, and I think there were varying levels of success or logic to doing that with either of these, but we'll get into that. So uh, would we like to go ahead and get kicked off with House 2, the second story?
1: I suppose we should. We can go chronologically here. So that was the film that I picked. House 2, the second story, released in 1987. Uh, And I have to say, going into this thing, a lot of this film feels very tailored to me. It was produced by Sean Cunningham, who basically invented the Friday the 13th series. Uh, Laura Park Lincoln uh, is a character in it, and she ended up playing the hero in my favorite Jason Slasher. Uh, The original idea for the film was created by Fred Decker, who uh, did Night of the Creeps, which is one of my favorite films. And... Your main uh, villain, I guess, of the film is voiced by Frank Welker basically doing Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. So there's a lot going into this movie, a lot of components that I already enjoy. However, it's like when you go to uh, a restaurant with a soda fountain and you do a little bit of each flavor of soda because you're like, oh, I like all these flavors, and then you drink it and it gives you diabetes. That's what I feel like this film kind of did for me. So, brief synopsis... um, our main character, Jesse, inherits, I guess, uh, a house that's been in his family for generations. Um, he's the only living member of his family left. He goes in with like his girlfriend and buddy and is, I guess, trying to find out more information about his family. Ends up discovering that his great-grandfather, also named Jesse, was buried at that property and had some kind of crystal skull Which may or may not have magical powers. And so they dig up his great grandfather, who is still alive because of this magical skull. And then it's almost like an anthology movie of like miniature adventures that they go on, trying to like uh, systematically losing and retrieving the skull. And then eventually ends up um, coming into a final confrontation with Gramps, uh, Jesse's arch nemesis. Who was uh, I? Don't remember the hell. It was like slick or slim or something like that. Um, it was slick dick. Slick dick. There you go. Slick dick. O'Hulahan, the 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 jumping cowboy, uh, yeah. comes back from the dead. Who also wants the skull? And they have this big the uh, big showdown at the end. There are some actually pretty impressive creature effects. Some interesting puppet work. Um, some decent makeup. Um, and the movie got critically panned. And uh, one of the big things was I guess it took a decidedly even lighter tone than the rest of the films in the series. I want to say there's like four or five films in the house series. And for being considered a horror comedy, it was neither funny nor horrific in any way. Yes, um, that is uh,
0: precisely the note I have here on mine, which is, I, I think the, the, the very first note to, to make about this is that as you can hear Zach describing it, I mean, adventure is the primary uh, genre word you would use to describe this film. I mean, it feels like Time Bandits. It doesn't feel yeah. like a horror comedy um, or, or anything related. I mean, I guess there are technically ghosts in it for, for being a haunted house film, but I mean, yeah, that's a term you'd use very lightly here. So I, I guess that's the main point to start off with here is why would you tack on an established brand that's known for being a haunted house franchise and then make an like sprawling epic adventure movie under that brand? I mean, it makes no sense. It'd be like taking a Halloween movie and then making a sequel where it's like a, a, a romantic comedy, like a Bridget Jones diary film or something. It just doesn't make any sense. Like why, yes, you, you're, you're piling off of something that's well-known, but you're not meeting or exceeding expectations in any way for
1: audiences. True, true. And I don't think that the first house necessarily, like, broke records or anything like that, so I don't know. It it may be like the Troll series, where they just sort of... Somebody felt like there was name recognition there, and so they just sort of threw it on there. Um, I will say... Okay, so... One of my big issues with this film is that it feels very schizophrenic. In terms of, like... Things kind of happen, and you assume they're going to be important, and then they're not important. Like, um, at the beginning... Uh, Jesse is dating Kate, who is, um, Laura Park Lincoln, as I said, who ends up being in Friday the 13th. Um, they're dating and she's gonna, maybe her friend is gonna become like a musical singer maybe. And Bill Maher shows up and plays the most Bill maher Bill Maher character ever, who's just pretty much just an asshole. Um, and then suddenly... Funny sud- man Bill Maher. Yeah, and then suddenly there's, um... A big party because oh yeah it's it's Halloween I guess so now there's a party and Jesse's ex-girlfriend shows up and there's like drama there and then like Bill Maher and Kate leave and you're like oh is that gonna play a part no no none of that was relevant and it's like oh okay but I think the idea of a horror comedy with like kind of zany characters and stuff like that can work But I think it would have worked if Fred Decker had been in the driver's seat for this. Like, I guess he was just, like, the idea guy who kind of came up with the concept. But, like, him directing Night of the Creeps, for example, balances comedy and horror very, very well. So, I think if they had given the keys to him to let him run this movie, I think it would have had a better shot of being at least more entertaining or not as schizophrenic. I don't know if it necessarily would have done any better, because, like, Night of the Creeps is underrated. So... It's not like, oh, well, it would have made a million dollars if you directed it. Well, no, but at least it wouldn't have been quite so, like, oh, okay, now I guess this is a thing now. Like, at one point. You
0: you say that, uh, however, (laughs) um, uh, didn't Fred Decker just direct the new Predator movie, which was a humongous piece of shit?
1: No, I don't think so. Did he? No,
0: I swear I just read an article recently. It was an interview with Fred Decker, and they were talking about The Predator. Um, uh, perhaps he was involved in some way then I, I swore oh, this is bullshit I might just have to like cut it out <laughs>
1: um, oh wait well, a minute wait a minute you're right hold on uh-huh. see he was see? the writer of uh, The Predator Shane Black is who directed it but Fred okay, Decker right. All right. and that Shane Black sense. were the writers on it Okay, well, then maybe you're precisely right then. Maybe
0: uh, Fred Decker only succeeds as a director. Well, because, that... like, look at um, Monster Squad. He did that one too, and that's a great yeah. balance of, like, oh, comedy. Oh, Monster fantastic. Um, by the way, I did actually read in sort of the, the fun facts on IMDb that, you know, Bill Maher was supposed to have a larger role in this movie, but he kept just kind of chiming in with lines like, Boy, the ghosts in this movie are just like Donald Trump in the White House—completely absent. Am I right,
1: folks? And they kept having to cut out lines like they that. It, yeah, so I would have cut his yeah. whole part from the beginning then. Um, yeah. But like, okay, let's. Just, I'm gonna run through some things that happen in this movie, and I'm not mm. just like cherry picking here. Um, Please. Like the 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 cold open, right? Uh. The, so yeah, there's like a, a family, and they have a baby. And then this mysterious figure shows up and shoots both parents and no. We're he, moving says,
0: on. he says, Return the slab or suffer my curse.
1: Right. And so then we just move on. But like, no, here's some here's moments from this film. Um, a caveman shows up to a Halloween party and punches an old cowboy and then goes back in time through a door in the house and There's also a half-dog, half-caterpillar that becomes a sidekick, as well as, like, a pterodactyl bird abomination.
0: That caveman barbarian character, what I really like about him is he's the type of muscular where you become so big that you can't have a flat stomach anymore and you walk around looking like you're five months pregnant.
1: Yeah, it was pretty impressive. I like that body type. But that was a scene that just happened in the movie. Also, um... John Ratzenberger from Cliff from uh Cheers shows up as an electrician who also is kind of Indiana Jones and there's no explanation for it and he's literally in one scene. Um and I believe he he says like you're a
0: sad pathetic little man, something along those lines. I so, just, you know, just another Every
1: episode is just another reminder of why I never want to do this ever again. And so Yeah, just scene after scene, like I said, literally it would be, I'm not exaggerating, they would go, like the skull would get captured by something, it would go run off, Jesse and Charlie have to go get the skull, they bring it back, and not ten minutes later it gets taken again and they go on another adventure. Like it almost felt like this movie was trying to be like a pilot for like a a, a bad TV show on Sci-Fi Channel, that like, oh, it's going to be wacky adventures through time and they got to get this skull back. It really, it, it does actually
0: feel precisely like that, especially in the sense that the skull itself has these very unique context-sensitive powers in that it's never truly explained like, okay, so is it life-giving? Because it's kept his grandfather, his great-great-grandfather alive for all this time. Right. Um, or is it that it can open portals through time and space? Because it does that too. So, what exactly are its abilities? Where's Indiana Jones? Where, yeah, I, th- there's no context. And so, I feel like that would lend itself well to a TV show. Something like Quantum Leap. Yeah. Where the rules aren't always, you know, set in stone. And sometimes the... they're like, well, we want to do this episode.
1: Because one of my questions, too, is like, does the skull want to be taken? Because, like, it just makes a portal to a prehistoric land in one of the upstairs rooms and then the like you know i guess caveman just kind of comes through and just takes the skull and leaves or the yeah. quasi racist like tribe people who just show up and take the skull and are going to what is sacrifice. what is
0: racist about a bunch of white people
1: showing up in tribal mask going so like again i don't want to be like the this is the woke horror podcaster or anything that but this di- this movie did kind of feel a little like white man saves the day fantasy writing in terms of like, Oh, well, you know, all these foreign people come in and grab this skull that, by the way, your great grandfather definitely stole. Like, it's not like he built it like the fucking, you know, lament configuration. It's like, he just found this thing and took it and killed somebody who tried to take it from him and finders keepers and all these foreign people keep showing up and trying to take it back and our That's hero true. has to come in and like save this random woman who's going to be sacrificed to the tribesmen, and it's like, oh, well, she automatically falls in love with our hero, even though she doesn't talk, and it's fine; she doesn't need to. She'll just be in the kitchen, I guess. Like that felt very <laughs> weird. I'm just like, yeah, it that oh, okay.
0: that was amazing to me that uh, that she she could not understand English and yet they were teaching her how to use a sink like, like that that's what's
1: really important and again is. back to like the the ex-girlfriend shows up and he's like oh jeez and she's like all over him and it's like oh are they going to rekindle or is he going to rekindle with Kate who he lo- who he was with at the beginning no none of that shit matters because now he's got this like foreign mute woman who's just going to be his slave i guess like very yeah. strange very strange movie and i hated it and i thought it was really dumb And just very all over the place. And nothing carried any weight because, like, everything would change. The rules constantly changed in the movie. So, like, it was difficult to get connected to anything because it was like, oh, well, I know we said this was really important. None of this matters now because now this new thing has come along. So here's the thing about this movie. Um...
0: Yes, it's all over the place. It's difficult to latch onto. It's It's very difficult to like. And it seems like the only people who like it, from what I can tell, are people who saw it when they were children and -hmm. therefore have some nostalgic value to it. That said, the thing that absolutely fascinates me about this movie is that it came out before a lot of more famous films that have similar aesthetics to it and similar themes and similar, like, gags and so it leads me to believe perhaps the crystal skull is real and that the people who were involved with this movie traveled forward in time and they watched Jumanji and Labyrinth and Bill and Ted and they're like this is we need to take the bits from this that work and we need to go back and we need to just make our own little sort of combination film a little amalgamation of it." And so, I, I really, that is my standing theory about this film, is that they actually were able to travel forward in time, see movies that did things this movie does in parts, but does it much better. Right. And then brought it back and put it in this
1: film. I that, Tell me I'm wrong. You're not. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Thank you. I, I, I'm saddened that it got lost in translation somewhere. Like, that on the trip back, they were like, I vaguely remember this thing. But not enough to do it well, so whatever, we'll just include yeah. it. Well, Tien, well, yeah, yeah, N, I've I've just been teeing up and taking shots at this thing. I want to hear your thoughts on this film because I know that you were a little more forgiving of this movie.
0: Well, I I'm forgiving of things that catch me off guard sometimes, okay. uh, in the sense that you know, kind of in the way that that Deadly Friend caught me off guard because you you uh, here's a, everyone can take a shot uh, for you know us mentioning Deadly Friend in an episode of the show. But uh, it's, just like Deadly Friend was my impression of, oh, this is like a stalker, fatal attraction kind of movie and ended up being about a killer robot. Uh, My impression of this movie was, ah, haunted house film, maybe a bit of a lighter tone to it. Maybe it'll be sort of reminiscent of, you know, The Frighteners or something. Um, And in reality is this big, like, Harryhausen-esque adventure with giant like stop motion monsters and big cavemen and sexy ladies who no speak of english and uh and it and it and it remind it really is as much it is as it is a foretelling into the future it also is like very much feels like a 40s you know Harryhausen film
1: well and I think if it had presented itself like that from the get-go I think it would have been better off like again if you did this as like a wacky series of adventures and made it that the case then I think you would have had a better shot at it but the fact that they were like oh no this is a horror fr- like the poster of it is like a decaying hand. Like either putting a key in or whatever, whatever, putting the two or whatever. But it's like a freaky looking poster. And then the movie itself is like, I don't know, man, it's kind of Indiana Jones, I guess. Um, And also you had interesting characters that like, they were like, nah, we got to stick with the two bland idiots. Like, you know, the electrician who was also an adventurer that he could have been the hero of the whole movie or even Bill Maher's annoying ass. Like, you were waiting for him to get the like the punch into the punch bowl like you were expecting him to get his comeuppance and he never does he's just sort of like all right well i'm done now goodbye and that's it
0: yeah i mean i just feel like these were archetypes they designed that didn't quite land where they should have i mean you know they developed this gramps character as like uh oh, it's a scary-looking character that turns out to be very, like, silly and heartwarming, and you're going to root for him. Or, like, oh, it's the wacky friend, and everything he says is so funny. Can't you tell? You're laughing the whole movie. Uh, That's how funny he is. And and so I guess that's the real thing, is that they were were using archetypes, but none of them were landing. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true.
1: That's true. You're not wrong on that. None of them were landing. Um... I don't know, just any other thoughts on this film? I just, I was really just sort of, it, it's interesting. You kind of come off as almost like a wrestling fan because for wrestling fans, if something happens that's genuinely surprising that no one knew was coming, it's automatically looked at as a positive, even if it doesn't make sense in like the grand storytelling or whatever. Or a better example, um, the Luke, I am your father moment in star Wars. Now that there's prequels and shit like that, you know, it's, it's obviously been a lot more telegraphed, but at its time it came out of nowhere and narratively, if you really break it down, it doesn't really mean anything. It's, it's just sort of like a, Oh, okay, weird. He's his dad. Okay. But it was such a shock to people that it's considered one of the greatest twists in history, but it's like, yeah, but a good twist should have like some kind of like, um, Edgar Wright films, like they'll have a twist, but they kind of give you hints at the beginning or foreshadowing. So when you go back and rewatch it, you're like, oh, I should have seen that coming a mile away. This did not. It was just out of nowhere. It was just like, oh, by the way, Darth Vader's your dad. And, but it's so shocking that it's automatically given like a positive spin. And so I feel like it's the same thing here. Like if you go in expecting this to be like a hard fucking horror film and then you're hit over the head with like, no, nah, just kidding. It's not at all that for a lot of people that surprise is considered a positive.
0: Now, uh, I, I would like to continue to keep track for anyone at home. Uh, yes, you, you should now be two shots in. We've mentioned Deadly Friend, and Zach has compared something in media to wrestling. How dare um, you? I thought so, you were going to
1: take offense that I called you similar to a wrestling fan. That's basically <laughs> like a slur in some circles.
0: Well, well, yeah, it is uh, in some circles, in most circles. Um, but, but, yeah, so, so you should have a nice healthy buzz going on at home now. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll continue on here uh, I'm not sure I mean as much as this movie is so strange and all over the place it, it almost is it's, it's difficult to, to uh, analyze in that sense because as Zach said there are so many elements they wanted to include in this in terms of well, I'm sure what they hoped was going to be the next like you know giant uh, huge 80's adventure franchise and obviously did not become that uh, that it's it's difficult to sort of break it apart at that point and say, like, well, of the many, many elements that they try to shove into this, like, cowboy, western, ghost, prehistoric, revenge film, buddy comedy, uh, cute, child-friendly. I mean, it is child-friendly. I, I, what is this film even rated? I don't think there's a single... I don't think there's any blood in the whole film. I mean,
1: people get shot, but... Right, but it's mostly ghosts who get shot, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, Well, yeah, let, me, no. let me ask you this, since this is sort of a... Ghost sp- lives matter. Thanks, you're very woke. Um, so, one thing that I would say uh, can be sort of exclusive for this particular episode of our show is how would you rate the actual ghosts in this film?
0: Okay, um, Gramps, I'll give him like a 2 out of 10... Well he's and, he's kind
1: of more of a zombie than a ghost, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah but, but I mean if we're if we're playing fast and loose with the term ghost here True. This is I supposed guess... to be
1: a fucking haunted movie. So yeah, is the yeah. caveman a ghost? What other team, what other ghosts are there? You're yeah, right. yeah, You're right. no. Well I'm saying in Dick, my mind Slick Dick in Magoo my mind, was just was yeah,
0: ghost. Slickcock and, and Gramps are the
1: only two ghosts in the film, to my understanding. Well actually Bill Maher was a ghost the whole time. Are you serious? A ghost of comedy when it used to be relevant boom such... I dunked on you Mar wow wow that's uh jeez, I
0: didn't I didn't see that coming I mean that I guess I understand what you were saying about twists there that that really does change around my appreciation of the film
1: but no so so what would you well let's at the very least we'll consider Gramps and Slick Dick McGraw as ghosts so how would you rate them in terms of like their actual ghostiness their their look their their spookability what would you say okay sure so
0: uh gramps uh, very much a friendly ghost aligned with you know the the titular casper um i'd say uh, spookability not so much doesn't really scare me that much um, only got like one spook right at the beginning Um, So I give him about a a one spook out of a possible 20, 25 spooks. Um, And in terms of actual ghostiness, can be shot with bullets. Uh, To my understanding, not necessarily a ghost trait. So uh, loses points there, unfortunately. I, I apologize, Gramps um also can interact with physical objects in a physical space can get drunk and uh and really just uh, to my understanding has nothing that really makes him a ghost at all uh so i guess i give him somewhere around a 3 out of 10 in terms of ghostiness okay. on the ghostometer slick now slick's a little better because slick Can do a few ghost tricks. You know, he, if you uh, are ready to unveil the main entree at your fancy dinner, you pull the top off and it's his head and he floats up through the table. And that classic ghost move. So he's going to earn points there straight away. Um, so I would give him probably closer
1: to a six out of 10. I, I, in, there were a couple moments, there were a couple moments of his ghostiness that I actually did enjoy. Like I thought the, him being in the mirror and still being able to fire out of it was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. him shooting with his head blown off was interesting. Oh yes. No, that's great. Uh, uh, yeah. In case we have not
0: mentioned that, that is actually the third act of the film is a headless cowboy ghost is in a shootout with several cops Who uh, have come to the house uh, (laughs) on a call, and now there are several cops outside shooting into a house where a headless cowboy zombie is uh, just firing away out of the out of the home.
1: This movie's fucking weird. I think that's probably the way to
0: yeah. That really is the way to 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 summarize it for sure. I I, yeah, like I said, I'm not sure how else you can really comment on House Two other than. It, it, you really should have just tried your best to make it a TV series. You shouldn't have had the house name attached to it. And you should have probably had maybe a few less cooks in the kitchen or a few less ideas you were trying to shove into one storyline. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, let me ask you this then. For any of the actors or actresses in it, was there anybody who gave a performance that you were particularly impressed with or that you enjoyed? I liked the
0: caveman. He was pretty good. And I also liked the puppy caterpillar. Uh, those are probably my two favorite performances in the film, I would say.
1: The Puppy Caterpillar was pretty cute. And again, could have absolutely been in like a labyrinth knockoff type thing. Oh, for sure. But this movie was just sort of like, I don't know, man, it's there, I guess. And now it's there. It
0: was like, yeah, No, precisely. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, any
1: final thoughts from you about House 2, the second story? It had. This was a weird who's who of like, oh, I remember them in terms of actors and actresses. Because like... Um, Maid Marion from uh, Men in Tights is in it for a minute. Obviously, Bill Maher. We talked about um, Tina from uh, New Blood. We talked about uh, Ratzenberger. There's like a shitload of like C and D grade celebrities that you're like, oh, I remember them from another movie. So, like, that's sort of fun. Um, The creature effects are interesting. But overall, the movie's a fucking mess. It's just a mess to watch. And like I said, nothing carries weight because the rules change like every 10 minutes. So it's like, okay, this is difficult to get invested in because for all I know, this thing that seems very important in 10 minutes will mean nothing.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what else to possibly comment about it. Oh, and also the, uh, the, the funny sidekick is in Fright Night. So, you know, Mm. yeah, you're, you're correct. C and D grade actors. Um, yeah. House two. Watch it as a kid. If you're a kid listening right now, you'll love it and you'll have fond memories of it uh, when you grow older. But otherwise, it's probably not the right movie for you.
1: Yeah, House Two, more like House Pooh, am I right? <laughs> oh man, that's what I come to expect on this show. I'm literally <laughs> I'm I'm creating a profile on Rotten Tomatoes right now. I'm not letting that go to waste.
0: Oh, perfect. That's uh, all right. Yeah, we got to. In fact, I'll make sure that that is the title of this episode. Um, But (laughs) let's go ahead and and take a break. (laughs) Okay, Zach, um, you know, it's been a little while since we've uh, flexed our creative muscles. I know we're both very busy people. You know, we have our little individual projects. Uh, I know you're working a lot of big stuff right now. Uh, Paramount and Fox obviously mm-hmm. have you pretty pretty tight on a leash right now with, with what you're involved in. You can't say much about it, but uh, but we know that it's that it's a, a an Alien versus Predator sequel. So you know uh, you don't have to hide that to me. But but anyhow, um, w- why don't we talk a little bit about something I know that we've mentioned here before on the show, which is uh, our love, our mutual love for Annabelle. Right, um, a modern and... day classic if there ever was. Yeah, precisely. And I know that for you, a lot of that borders on sort of a sexual lust for Annabelle. Yes. And that's fine. I mean, obviously, the producers also know that. I mean, they they, uh, they, they certainly, that's an aspect of, it, it is a plot point of every film, is that someone become, sorts of fall in love with Annabelle. And it's, you know, I mean, it's not my favorite part of every movie, but... It exists, and I've come to expect it, but anyhow, uh, the last Annabelle movie that we received in theaters there was sort of a uh, a big come-together ensemble film in which a lot of the ghosts from the entire Conjuring universe were able to be present, and it was as if... Uh, everything that the, the, the Warrens, the famous demonologists, had ever faced was now being unleashed in one home. And uh, they were there to, to fight against all of it. And it was great. You know, a lot of people were saying this This looks like the Avengers of horror movies. And, and I think that that's precisely, uh, you, you know where we come from. And I think that's always where we need to be shooting for. Is that if it's not Marvel, it's not worth doing s kind of I mean we have that on a placard above our office. Yes. So uh, So I think what we really need to do is just start developing from stage one here. We, we just need to get the pitch out there for this Annabelle sequel that makes it even bigger because as you recall, at the end of Annabelle comes home, it says Annabelle will return in Annabelle age of Ultron. And so we need to we, we need to write that sequel essentially. Right.
1: Well, I originally, of course, pitched that she will return in Diamonds Are Forever, but Age of Ultron also good. And also, I will uh, do you the kindness, as well as our listeners here, because we are obviously in a brainstorming session. I will uh, skip the formalities that I normally present uh, when we have these types of... uh, uh, discussions about the Annabelle series, which of course is that the beginning, middle, and end of every meeting is me giving a hard presentation on the uh, creation and release of an Annabelle blow-up fuck-doll. I'm going to skip those formalities here, but we all know that that still is on the docket for me. So yeah. immediately upon hearing this pitch, I think that you have to go with, you know, what are going, to, what's going to be other films of the same kind of ilk that could fit in pretty seamlessly. You don't want to necessarily mm-hmm. shoot for the fences immediately. So yeah. my first thought was, if you're going to have basically like an Avengers type style movie built off of what is around from the conjuring, I go with what well, was similar to the conjuring. So you immediately have Daniel Radcliffe in from the lady in black yes. and have that be one of your new gets. that. Uh, that is going to kind of surprise people, but maybe not be totally off-kilter in terms of branding. Kind of like the people who keep suggesting that, like, Gamera show up in this new monster universe that uh, Godzilla's in. Uh, so, mm. so, so, kind of like... Gamora
0: well, from uh, from Avengers?
1: Yes, Gamera from... Gamera the Flying Turtle from Avengers... Right, a lot of who, people have been,
0: who, who Chris Pratt is in love with?
1: Right, right. Yes, Gamora, the flying turtle interest, the flying that Chris turtle. Pratt is trying to fuck in several movies. Bring yeah. that into the Godzilla universe. There's been a lot of uh, petitions made about that. Yes. Uh, by the way, I okay, like to go well, back I to my previous. I'd like to go back to mm-hmm. my previous statement uh, when we were talking about uh, House Two. In uh, every episode, literally takes me closer to killing myself. And ending everything that I've been working on. I just wanted to well, point that's that really, out.
0: That's really the goal, ultimately, is once I can record your suicide on audio Excellent. for this show, then we will
1: be able then to, I to move a on and finally close out. I become a ghost in the Conjuring universe at that
0: point. Yes, that's right. That's really the main goal. I mean, that's how you make it in this business. you got to make bold moves. It's all about self-insertion. Um, Yes, precisely, which is how I feel about Annabelle. Um, So uh, the thing about Daniel Radcliffe, though, is that I think that perhaps a plot point we reach is that he dies in the movie and then he essentially becomes his role in Swiss Army Man, where he's just like a farting, like a tool corpse uh, that gets dragged around with the rest of the the heroes of the movie, and they use him to sort of rocket and propel themselves around the room, or, or whatever it Excellent. may be. Excellent. Uh, so I think that would be a good move. Now, I'm trying to think of other, you know, the the most popular ghost movies. Now, uh, obviously, you know, we here on this show have reviewed Sadako versus Kayako, and those are very famous ghosts, and I think we'd be doing ourselves a real disservice if we did not include the Mashup between the two that ends that film uh, as a singular ghost in the movie. That seems uh, effective.
1: That's cost effective.
0: It's cost effective, yeah, precisely. I mean, you only have to hire one stringy, dark-haired uh, Japanese actress at that point uh, instead of two, and that does definitely save on some of the the the, the budgeting there. Um, I would also like to make a call back to some of the hentai that I sent you in that episode. I really
1: would wish that you would not make a call back to that, ever. Um, no, here's the thing. Yes, that's cost effective. But if we're going with famous ghost films, I mm-hmm. think that the number one get, the one that will guarantee butts in seats, yes. would be Ghost Dad. You get Bill Cosby out of jail... And you have him star in this film alongside this tiny white doll. That's fantastic. No, that's great. I mean, do you think?
0: So do you think you and I would personally be able to just break him out? And and in that case, we'd be. You know, that the the only thing I will say, the only negative to that idea is that I think it would really tighten up the shooting schedule of this project because at that point we'd be technically on the lam true uh, in terms of uh you know making sure we could get all of his shots in because I you know I don't want to do that CGI thing I know it's the big thing nowadays where you just you know Paul Walker dies and you put his face on his brother or whatever right. um but but I don't want to do that with with Bill I think he deserves more respect than that honestly. I agree with that
1: I agree with that so
0: uh but but yeah right along with uh, what you said I think that the other ghost that obviously needs to be in this movie is is Patrick Swayze's ghost Excellent. I think that's you know, there, there's there's no chance. I mean, it, uh, to 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 make a, a, a ghost movie and not have his ghost in it. I mean, it would be like, it would be like making a Spider-Man movie without Spider-Man. I mean, it, it would be the expectation. You're putting the name right there in the title. You're saying Annabelle, uh,
1: the thirteen ghosts of Annabelle, or, or whatever. And so, I mean, that name's got real marketability to it, if we're being honest here. Uh, I would say Zoinks, that that name's got a lot of marketability. No, I I agree completely. And, I mean, are we
0: sure we want to do this as a movie and not a miniseries where we sort of have a Vincent Price impersonator? opening up every episode and speaking to Annabelle and telling her about the next ghost that she needs to go and I think, I mean we've been tiptoeing around it but I think Annabelle needs to be the protagonist Of course, it has to be at this point Yeah, and uh, much like the Dora the Explorer movie that's coming out I think that we need to just hire like a kind of 20 year old uh, You know, makes you feel uncomfortable sexuality, about your sexuality uh, actress um, to play Annabelle and have her be the, the hero.
1: Right. Well, I would also say that if we had the right budget, I think the the main villain of uh of this, because Annabelle obviously is gonna be our hero at this point, would yeah. be um Beetlejuice. However, oh, well, he's the ghost with the most. I however, mean, not Michael Keaton Beetlejuice. The Broadway Beetlejuice, the Broadway, yeah, obviously. Yeah, the Broadway money grubbing yeah. uh piss on the grave of a great film, um, sort of like Oh, here's uh, an Adam Driver reference. <laughs> that Beetlejuice
0: specifically. I will go ahead and just break the veil of irony that this is behind and say that I've listened to that soundtrack many times and actually
1: am a fan of it. Uh, but uh, I will also but, uh, anyways... break the veil and I will say that that's three for three on moments in this episode that makes you want to quit this show and never ever do it again. So that there for for those keeping track at home, we're three for three. And uh, we're, you know, we're just starting this episode. Listen, just because Beetlejuice makes a
0: reference to
1: hipsters vaping
0: in the Broadway show does not mean that it's pissing on Here's Michael thing. King's face. Here's
1: the thing. The fact that Beetlejuice has made any sort of reference to vaping means that just burned down all of Broadway. It had a good run. You're done, though. You're done. You had your chance. We let it slide with cats for 175 years. That's too much. Uh, Okay.
0: Here's the thing. Um, Beetlejuice. Whatever
1: you're about to say, I hate it already. I hate it. I hate whatever you're about to say.
0: Beetlejuice is being marketed
1: to a younger
0: audience, okay?
1: You don't get a younger audience than when it's a fucking cartoon. So what the fuck are you talking about?
0: It was a fucking cartoon, animated cartoon. Listen, the cartoon doesn't even... Uh, he's hes Lydia's friend in the cartoon. There's no...
1: Uh, what? You, there's you no think fucking undertone? Is that what you're about to say? Yes. <laughs> yes. undertone of, hey, remember yes. the time we almost got married and we were definitely going to fuck? Is that what you're saying is the big problem of yes. the cartoon? I wanted the sexual undertones between Beetlejuice and Lydia in the cartoon. You
0: got Pierre the Gay Skeleton. That's as much sexual undertone as you need. Listen, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. The only thing that I remember about that show is that there's an episode where they go back to Roman times and Julius Caesar is a literal head of lettuce.
1: Good, yes, that's that's hilarious. That's a hell of a lot funnier than fucking, hey, I'm Beetlejuice on stage. Here's a vaping joke. It's 2019. Is this funny? Are people enjoying this? I enjoyed it very much. Hey folks, I'm taking a shit on things. Womp womp. And here's a fucking insult. Like, no, fuck you, fuck you, fuck that show. Welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, we're breaking the. I'm like Deadpool. I'm breaking the fourth (laughs) wall. Yeah, I would have been been less offended if the show was called Beetlejuice the Musical. Parentheses. He's basically like Deadpool. I would have have been less offended. How long do you think it
0: is before we actually get a Deadpool musical uh, on Broadway? Oh, it's
1: like the next fifteen minutes. There's no doubt in my mind. They're just going to copy over the fucking, the songs and scripts from Beetlejuice and just make it Deadpool. Uh, Ryan Reynolds does this shit like eight times a week. Like that's. Wow. And the, the
0: musicals changed it so much from the original. Isn't that. Look, I'm referencing the film. This is based on uh, Rob Liefeld. Are you triggered? Because oh, look at these
1: pouches I've got. Fuck you.
0: Alright, well as you can tell, we're really on the on a strong track with this Annabelle sequel. So, I really um, think five stars, I think we're gonna do just fine. Excellent. Well, uh, we've got that another pitch in the bag, baby. Yep. That's exactly All right. what we've got here. We're geniuses, the two of us. Agreed. Let's go ahead and get back to the show. That's you, buddy.
1: Oh fuck. Uh yes, so we're back. Uh what a kind even keeled debate, no doubt. Mm. And now it's time for our second sequel, with no equal. And by that I mean it has nothing to do with the goddamn original. Uh, we are talking about the uh, 2013 "Haunting in Connecticut 2: Ghosts of Georgia," often referred
0: to as the worst title of any film in existence. I can see that. Uh, but uh, but that said, uh, it is. It is, as we said, a brother-sister film, much like House 2. There's the big connection there, is that this also has uh, virtually nothing to do with the original movie. Uh, It has nothing to do with Connecticut at all. Uh, It is entirely about these ghosts of Georgia. And uh, let's just give a little synopsis here. So, um, there's a MILF and her hot husband. They move into a new home out in the forest of Georgia where uh, the mom uh in the first five minutes of the movie you see that she is experiencing vision she's on medication for it uh she is seeing what seems to be like ghosts um and it's implied that most of her life she's experienced this most of her adult life and she's always been medicated for it her family is aware um and her daughter who is probably 11 12 yeah Um, starts to have the same sort of phenomena where she is reporting these imaginary friends that, uh, uh, you know, actually seem to have, you know, knowledge that she couldn't possibly have, like gold being buried around this new house and, you know, the locations of certain things that she couldn't possibly have known, etc., etc. And so the mother uh, worries that uh, she's contracting the same disease that the mother believes that she has that's not, you know, paranormal in any way. Um, And the... uh, Is it her sister who's, like, their neighbor now? Basically the chaotic hot aunt. Yeah, the chaotic hot aunt um, who is, like, a a mystical person and is trying to convince both her sister uh, and now that her niece niece, that uh that this is in fact paranormal experience that it's a gift it's not you know a disease it's not you know a mental illness um and so they start to dig into the mystery of who were these residents that old this uh, owned this old uh, secluded house out in georgia and why are we experiencing more visions now that we're out here who are these spirits if that's what they are and it's it's a real mystery. And you get to uncover it through the film.
1: Yes. Now, this film... Now, I have zero clue. Why is it called... Is it just like Houseware in terms of, like, somebody thought, oh, well, Haunting in Connecticut tricked enough people on Netflix, you know, to watch that they were just going to do the same thing? Because they don't make any reference to, like, oh, they're bringing in, like, a Ghost Squad team from Connecticut to check this out, or anything like yeah. that, like... It's just sort of like, no, I that's think, also a
0: thing. I think quite literally the only connecting tissue is that it's based on a true story and it's sort of produced in the same way that it's off of uh, someone's biography of a
1: paranormal account and that's it. So one of the things that I struggled with with this film is they, they've mentioned that the house that this family has moved into is the house of a former station master... During the Underground Railroad era. So basically, this guy would help hide runaway slaves and help them to kind of travel on um, north. And so Heidi, the little girl, sees like what appears to be ghosts of slaves. And then there's this Mr. Gordy who, like, is an old white man who seems kind of grumpy. And so. I was kind of uncomfortable about that in terms of like a, go- a a dumb ghost movie trying to have like a social awareness to it of like like if you were going to have a movie talking about the ghosts of runaway slaves I feel like this was not the film that was going to do that justice
0: yeah if anything I mean like I-, I have no doubt that like Jordan Peele could produce like an interesting and relevant and woke movie about like the ghosts of runaway slaves um and have it star a black family and, yeah. and have it be relevant and have it be you know notable african american actors in it so that the you know themes run deep uh but yeah it really is uncomfortable that these are uh all just the most white bread milk toast people you can imagine with these deep deep
1: georgian southern accents which can we talk about that for just a moment please now Uh, T.N., you and I have lived in Florida for quite some time. Yes. The north Uh, of the south. Right. And so, that being said, does the exaggerated southern twang in this film, does that offend you in any way? Uh,
0: I mean, it doesn't offend me in the sense that I'm like, you know, my uncle born in Georgia and he don't talk like that. Um, however, it does, it 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 grates away at me, uh, for sure. I feel like a lot of Floridians, we have very strong feelings about, like, white trash and about, like... <laughs> because, because Florida is so divisive and that it has so many, like, major cities and, like, tourism spots that we deal with so many cultures that we don't have to deal. It's not like Georgia or Tennessee or Alabama, where it's, like, almost entirely just you know, like southern folk. That's um, true. So, so if anything, it, uh, uh, Floridians have been sort of bred to know that like the worst parts of Florida are where you're going to find these types of people. That's it. You know, you, you got you to gotta move to the city in Florida to avoid all that.
1: Yeah, maybe that's it. But like just watching this film, I was just very put off that like, you know, it was like they would forget how southern they were supposed to be from scene to scene. Like they would be talking about something and they would be like, well, you know, maybe, you know, you're overdoing it with the medication or like, well, maybe this place is okay to live. And then it would be a a scene where they would be like, oh, you're supposed to be really Southern. They'd be like, oh, hey, uh, Heidi, you're supposed to be going with your mama. What are you doing out here in the field? And it's like, where the hell did this voice come from all of a sudden? Yeah, no, that's
0: very true. I feel like it—it it, it truly would change scene to scene, and you would often notice that the beginning of a scene would be super, super strong Southern, like, "Heidi, if you don't get out of that bathtub soon, like, I'm gonna come in there and give you a whooping." And then, like, the scene would continue, and it would be like, "My God, Heidi, what has happened to you?"
1: Yeah, what? <laughs> super weird. Okay, so, um. One okay, So, so I, I have questions. I've got questions. One thing that connects this to House is there's a lot of shit that they introduce and they don't give any kind of explanation to, but they just sort of move on. So, as Tien pointed out, our uh, main character, uh, or the main mom, uh, is it uh, Lisa, I believe? Yeah, Lisa. Um, she gets these horrible, shitty, modern horror jump scare kind of visions that come in and they just sort of, like, and jump at her, and she, like, freaks out, and that's why she takes her medication, which is totally understandable. But then Joyce, her sister, and Heidi, her daughter, are both like, oh, it's a gift, why don't you embrace it? And I'm like, well, wait a minute, so does Joyce also have, is she living in a haunted house at all times where, like, goddamn jump scare is happening to her every ten minutes? Or are they, like, cool ghosts for her, and Lisa's the only one who gets shitty ghosts? Because, like, it's a horrible thing that she's dealing with. And everyone's like, I don't know why you have to be so selfish about this whole ghost situation, Lisa. And it's like, uh, because they're going booga booga at her all the damn time. That's why. I, I I don't understand why Joyce was like, this is a gift, not a curse. I don't know why you treat it that way. I don't know. How come? But maybe because when I'm sitting on the edge of my bed first thing in the morning, our dead mother is looking at me and going, how fucking dare you? Like, maybe that's why I take medication. Like, I didn't understand where the movie was coming from of like, she just needs to let these ghosts into her heart. That's her problem. And I'm like, these ghosts are horrific looking. I don't want to put them in my heart either. I mean, that's
0: fair. Um, I think that perhaps the point Joyce is trying to make is that uh, she's in denial about it and that she's trying to play it off as that there's, there's nothing uh, out of the ordinary in it and that it, it truly is just uh, hallucinations, that it just is her mind playing tricks on her and that there is no real... Uh, paranormal activity going on Um, which is fine I suppose I will say that throughout much of the movie despite the things that obviously prove that it isn't just hallucinations and it isn't just oh her daughter is you know uh, it's a hereditary thing and now her daughter is contracting the same illness as her mother and now she's seeing hallucinations like no the daughter knows things now that she never would have known if if there were not interference from some other forces. So, you know, what I say is
1: throw this mom in a a river in Egypt because she is in denial. I I would say that's four for four in terms of moments that make me regret doing this. Um, Let me ask you something. So there's a scene in the movie when uh, some spooky shit's going down. And so... um, Heidi, the little girl's in the bathtub and her mom's like, all right, get up, dry off, you know, go to bed. And Heidi's like, oh, but I'm seeing ghosts. And her mom's like, no, you're not. Shut the hell up. Go to bed. And so Heidi's like, I can't believe you don't believe me. If you loved me, you'd believe me. And she's like, oh, it's because I love you is why I don't believe, you know, get your ass to bed. And so then ghosts attack her, uh, ghosts attack Heidi in the bathtub. Oh my God. Uh, her mom pulls her out. She almost drowned. Holy shit. They take her to the hospital. And then they're like, oh, Heidi, what happened? And she's like, oh, my mom tried to hold me under the water and tried to kill me. And everyone's like, what the fuck? You a bitch, Lisa? And she's like, that's not what happened. And they're like, oh, you a bitch. And so they all leave. And Lisa's about to leave. And Heidi's like, hmm. It sucks when no one believes you, isn't it? I'm like, oh, so the real plot of this movie is that this child is a goddamn psychopath and that she's a sociopath now. And she's like, I'm going to fake my own death and blame it on you, mommy. How you like that? Now yeah. who's not getting cookies before bed, you motherfucker? Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. that was like, that is dark. That
0: is deep and dark. It was really dark and it was like kind of the only time that that happened, honestly.
1: Every, yeah, every then the rest time... of the movie's like, yeah. anyway, this little girl's got all kinds of troubles.
0: Yeah, yeah. Other than that, she was playing a pretty typical role of a little girl in a horror movie in terms of, you know, ha- experiencing a lot of the ghost and trying to get her parents to believe her and then being the one that is in danger, you know, being the one that's dropped in the hole with the ghosts. You know, all that was pretty typical. But that one moment was, was like, wow, apparently Mr. Gordy, uh, the previous owner of this house, this spirit that she's been talking to, is really teaching this 11-year-old child, like, advanced... Emotional ma- manipulation.
1: Well, like, and then that's, the, worst, uh... the worst part is that it works because the next scene they're like, "We're bringing in a goddamn exorcism because this girl's seeing ghosts." Like, like the mom's like, "Well, I'm not going to jail, so I guess we're gonna play along with whatever this ghost narrative is now." And I had another problem with that, so it's similar to my problem with like the exaggerated um, southern accents. So they bring in this preacher from town. And he's going to do this, like, elaborate blessing on little Heidi to make sure that she gets protected from these spirits. Um, So they're getting ready to do the whole thing, whatever. And so Joyce, the very spiritualist aunt, who is down with the ghosts and has no problems whatsoever and gives her sister shit for denying the existence of ghosts and the supernatural elements, rolls her eyes the entire time that they're doing this prayer And that boggles my mind of, wait a minute, wait a minute, how can you sit there and be like, yes, ghosts exist, there's other worlds, there's a veil between worlds that she mentions. Like, these are all absolutes, 100% confirmed, but the existence of a god or that prayer or a blessing could work. Please, we live in the real world, thank you very much. And I'm like... Where the hell is this coming from? It felt like they needed like a skeptic, but they were like there's we don't have any skeptics in the scene. So they were just like, uh the magic ant is now a skeptic all of a sudden. Well, she's she's happy to fill that role in the moment. yeah the, I mean
0: I, uh, it it's funny that they would say, oh, we don't have enough characters to like bring somebody else in but there are so many characters in this movie. there are so many like weird B characters that they bring in to be like, and i'm the southern preacher and let me tell you a bit about the history of this home and and i'm the mystical old black lady and now let me tell you about my family and all of this and yet uh they they had to co- consolidate a few characters in scenes like that so
1: well i also liked as to you pointed out earlier that like every random b character that comes in is all portrayed by a black person because they were like look we cannot get away with having a ghost story that takes place in Georgia about slaves and not have black people in the movie. So there's just like this cavalcade of of uh, B, uh, B-rate black characters that just come in to a scene and go, hello, I'm here to give this piece of exposition. Well, so long. gets focused back it, on the it, white it, family. It, it, it quite
0: literally is a revolving door of a black exposition. Just yes. characters coming in and in and like, and I'm Farmer John, and I'm Father Priest Mackie, and, and just over and over. And it's like, wow, well... Um, I mean, that's a lot of exposition, and uh, I, I'm glad to
1: have it, honestly. I'm glad yeah, to have it. that was a little nuts. Um, so let's delve a little bit more, because I have sort of a general um, theory about uh, the film in general. But um, I wanted to see, what were your thoughts when we finally got to, I guess, the main villainous Ghost, who, in a twist of all twists, was the station master who owned the house originally? Because even though he helped hundreds of run- runaway slaves he forgot about five and they died and then he taxidermied them for some reason and so now he's an evil devil ghost
0: well I mean the uh, the implication in the movie is that he he was a taxidermist and that he was developing these sort of like serial killer traits. This is what I got from it is that he is that he truly was he was a bad person who, who wanted to, you know, like stuff a human being and figured, well, what better way to do that than just to be like, oopsies, I forgot, quote unquote, about a couple of these slaves that I'm trying to transport here. Stay in this little uh, room that's uh, eerily similar to a cage that I built and uh, I'll come back for you wink, wink, and then, you know, waits until they die and then comes back and stuffs their corpses. So, I mean, that's, I would say, enough reason to uh, have an angry mob come to your house and fill you with hay and lynch you, Um, which is fine. I mean, here's, okay, so that's the big twist, really, is that this movie is literally Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island um, (laughs) because all the spooky ghosts are just, like, spirits that have been killed and are seeking, uh, not revenge, but just uh, a conclusion. They're seeking rest. And so they're coming to try and inform the living, like, hey, this is the secret. These are the people that killed us. And, like, pointing, like, please see me. See this person. And that's when they can finally, you know, find peace.
1: Well, yeah, so so at one point, they're trying to figure out what's going on. Heidi gets, like, grabbed by some ghosts. And dropped in this hole. And then they find, oh my god, there were like five dead slaves down here. Wow, their stories can finally be told. The day is saved. And then the movie's like, oh, but wait. The evil taxidermy ghost is now released. And he's the bad guy. And now he's going to torment Heidi for some reason that isn't explained. Um, And then they got to figure out what to do with that ghost. But like, it just felt like... Okay. Here would have been my solution. Are you ready? I'm ready. You needed two characters in the sta- Station Master's house. You needed a good person and a bad person. You needed a good person who transported all the runaway slaves. And you needed a bad person who taxidermied a select few. Because by having it be both guys, both ideas in one person, makes it a somewhat complicated issue. Because it's like, okay... Yes, as you pointed out, him taxiderming slaves that he left on purpose is absolutely unforgivable and is horrible, but the fact that he still l- saved hundreds of slaves' lives by letting them like run through his shit just makes it weirdly complex, like unnecessarily. Because it would be like if, oh yes, this doctor cured hundreds of diseases and saved countless lives, but also was uh, a molester and it's like okay well that's obviously terrible but now that you've included all this other information of these good things that he did i now it's complicated now it's weird so it like, is,
0: yeah it's like how you how everyone feels about michael jackson essentially right exactly it's like listen i will listen to his music all day long and if someone's like but what about all the like I'm like don't show me leaving neverland Right, I just want to listen to
1: Man in the Mirror in peace. Right, same kind of thing it's like, well now what are we supposed to do with this now? Like, And the movie portrays it like he is the devil, like he's a spooky spooky ghost, and it's like okay, that's fine but what about all the good shit that he did? Like, And I'm not trying to be like, whataboutism guy, but like it just makes it overly complicated when it doesn't need to be just have a different person there be like, Oh, his brother was the one who was helping everybody. And this guy was a psycho and he ended up killing his brother one day and stuffing him along with these five remaining slaves. And that's why he's evil. And then he tarnishes the family's legacy, something like that. But having it be the same guy is like, so what was his bag? Why didn't he do that to all the slaves then? Like, why was he like, oh, I'm going to be cool for like 200, but at 205, uh-uh, I'm fucking flipping the switch on that. Like, I don't, it just, it was very weird. Essentially, what Zach is trying to say
0: is that, you know, I mean, how many women did Bill Cosby drug? No, like 20, I'm not 30? Tr- God but damn it. I'm not trying to do that. How many hundreds of people did Bill make laugh? You know, no, like, that's I'm not the not real comparison. To say that at
1: all. I'm just saying you made the villain overly complicated when he didn't need to. Because your crowd's gonna be like, well, wait, what? Like, I had to re—I had to go back and rewatch some parts because I thought I missed. I'm like, well, is this the same guy? Is the station master the station master? Is it the same dude? Like, or or no? Here's a better solution. Here's a better solution. Okay, so so the station master is. Are you fixing the films here? Is that what you're doing? Kind of, sort of. Shut up. So (laughs) the station master is good, and he helps all the slaves. Okay, great. His son grows up racist and hates what his father is doing and ends up killing and taxidermying whatever. That way it's like very clear of like, okay, his son is bad, that's the bad ghost. Not like, oh well, I don't know. People are 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 shades of grey is basically what the ghost became. Like, I don't know, man. Ghosts are complicated. Like it just felt weird. When it was very it's clear true to life, ghosts are complicated in real life too. But that would be like if it, if fucking Jason Voorhees was like, "Yes, he killed all these camp counselors and innocent people, but goddamn if he didn't boost the agriculture around this whole Crystal Lake area of New Jersey. Like he's really doing great for the community overall. I got to be honest with you. He's That's really true. limiting the carbon footprint of this area of New Jersey. Like it's just it's making it overly complicated when it doesn't need to.
0: I mean, that's fair. And to, uh, to to agree with you and to add on to that, I believe that in sort of the epilogue of the film, um, they mentioned something about how they were going to just kind of cover up this and just make it where only the good part of the Station Master's legacy was what was remembered. Am I wrong? I'm pretty sure it said something like that, where that's that's what they're going to kind of leave as the mark that people can find on history was all the slaves that he saved.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's weird. Um, so before I get into my, I'm going to take a mega shit on this. Do you have anything else that you want to throw in anything else? Um, my only other comments are about the literal
0: epilogue cards at the end of the movie, which I loved. (laughs) So, uh, you can go ahead and, and,
1: and, take your shit first. So, uh, the, the thing about this film is that it felt like that on set there was like the head producer of the film was a very cranky toddler. And what I mean by that is, it felt like every time the movie was reaching sort of like what could have been a conclusion, it's like the the toddler producer was just like, yeah, but then what happened? Like, oh, Heidi's down in this hole, but her dad makes a heroic save. And while they're down there, they discover that there were five slaves who were unjustly killed. And now their spirits can finally rest. And like their story can be told to the world, and now the world's a better place. The end. Yeah, but then what happened? Uh, uh, well, it turns out that in the same area as the the ghost slaves, there was also a bad guy ghost, and now he's going to haunt that place, and so the family's going to get in their car, and they're going to leave. Okay, but then what happens? Oh, jeez. Uh, f- uh, the car won't start. And so now the family has to go and deal with the ghost because now they're Ghostbusters, I guess. But then what happens? God, I, um, I don't know. The mom is in the secret cave and the spooky ghost is there and then the other ghosts are going to high-five the mom and now they're going to kill the bad guy ghost. And there, it just kept going, like, every time the movie would be like, okay, well, you could basically end it here. It just felt like they were like, no, keep going. And it's like, fuck, uh, okay, well, now the family has to do this now instead. It was
0: it was very annoying. Right. No, I mean, I understand that entirely. It does seem like a sort of never-ending story of uh, where they were trying to get to. The finish line kept moving.
1: Yeah, they kept moving ghosts. the goalposts every time. It was like, all right, we're closing in on an ending here, and they would be like, "Oh, but now what about this ghost? And like, what, can this guy? What about this guy though? What's he got to say?"
0: Yeah, there really was a point like thirty minutes before the end of the movie where it felt very conclusive and was like, "Ah, we're we're wrapping it up here," and that's when they start introducing, be like, "Turns out it was all the station master." <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um. I will say, though, just to kind of wrap up here about uh, Haunting in Connecticut 2, Ghost of Georgia, that it does have epilogue cards, like a lot of based-on-true-story films have, where it gives the, you know, the, the the further future into where all of these people ended up, and then actually shows the real people that the story is based on. And as you know, these are incredibly sexy, hot Hollywood actors and actresses in this movie— and especially the husband, uh, Chad Michael Murray, I believe it is, who's, like, from Cinderella Story and One Tree Hill. One Tree Hill, yeah. And, and so he's, like, just the hottest Georgia Southern cop you can imagine. And then it shows the real husband at the end, and he just looks like the most standard Georgia boy you'd imagine. <laughs> like, a, a body like a leg of lamb wearing camo. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's just <laughs> No And it's I... like, oh no, I get it. You know <laughs> That was
1: that the you're absolutely right. The ending cards was such a roller coaster of its own because like when they first showed, like, by the way, here's the real family and here's the real ghost that we were referring to. I was like impressed. I'm like, Holy shit, this is actually based on a true story. It's not like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, oh based on a true story. Well, not really. It's like, oh no, it's like actually based on a real thing. That's impressive. And then it shows the people and it's like, oh boy, these are some fugly Georgia people. And we definitely uh, went for the big, like, upgrade and all of these actors and actresses.
0: I think they really just sort of reused the real people, to be honest. That's that's kind of my my note about this. Um, but but that said, I mean, did you have any sort of final, final notes about uh, or thoughts about Haunting in Connecticut to Ghost of Georgia?
1: Like I said, I felt like there's a much smarter movie out there somewhere that could have actually done, you know, this justice. That could have absolutely, you know taking a story about that is complicated and like you said have prominent black figures in it and like really tell a difficult story and not have it just be like oh boy these ghosts are really being a pain in the tuckus to the sweet little white family like it just felt like this was just a very this was not the movie to to handle this topic that you know there's a much smarter movie out there somewhere that could right well let's go ahead and take a break
0: From his mother's basement, weighing in at 195 pounds, he wishes, and knowing absolutely nothing about the world of professional wrestling, he is the Clueless
1: Wrestler! Everyone, welcome to Clueless Wrestling Fan, the podcast within a podcast where I drag my best friend kicking and screaming into the wild and weird world of professional wrestling. And so uh, to anyone that this is the first time you're hearing this, basically what's been going on is I've been walking TN through one of the bigger boom eras of professional wrestling, kind of hitting some of the bigger marks. Um, We've talked a little bit about the Attitude Era. We delved last time into the boom of the late 80s, and now we are changing gears somewhat, shifting gears, shifting dates, and shifting companies as we explore world championship wrestling. Specifically, December 27th, 1993, also known as Starcade 93, and specifically the main event of that match Vader, who was the WCW heavyweight champion, taking on Ric Flair. And if Ric Flair loses, he's got to hang up the boots for good. It is title versus career in Starcade 93. So, Tien. Uh, in addition to showing you the match, which we'll get to momentarily, I also showed you some of the buildup that was going into this show. Buildup that, believe it or not, had to be thought of somewhat on the fly. And so uh, we'll, we'll see if we get into that at all. But basically, what are your thoughts going into the, uh, I guess, the promos or hype videos? Not even hype videos, just the promotion uh, going into this title fight. Well, first and foremost, I
0: guess I just want to ask, so is wrestling real?
1: Uh, in this era, going up against Vader,
0: uh, to a certain extent, yes, absolutely. Okay, all right. Um, so my my next question is, I am just completely, I I have no idea what's going on. I <laughs> what, okay. So what is a Starcade? Who is Vader? Okay. What is this 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 promo? This like, uh, it's it's because you're right. It's not a hype video. It's like a video of. Uh, Ric Flair is being shipped off to Afghanistan and he's like <laughs> saying goodbye to his family. I'm
1: like, what is this? Okay, so um, a couple of little pieces of information. So WCW was a, another major wrestling company. The bad guys, right? Based <laughs> right. on this show. Right. Um, WCW was um, very popular in the South. So the fact that this show it takes place in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is uh, Ric Flair's hometown, um, they were very big in the South. So, even though it's 1993, which is somewhat considered like a doldrums time in professional wrestling in terms of just it wasn't super hot on TV at the moment, um, we're like five years away from the attitude era where everything really explodes. Um, this is still a very big deal for this region. And so, one thing that's interesting is in the world of professional wrestling, if let's say you're a wrestler, TN, and you're a big, strong guy. And maybe there's been a couple of matches where you might have gotten someone hurt for real. Um, maybe you landed weirdly on somebody and they cracked a rib or, or, you know, maybe they suffered a concussion or something like that. By, okay. and, large, by and large, in storyline, that would never really be brought up. Meaning the company usually would not, like, take a big shit on you and be like, what an unsafe asshole this guy is that he got people hurt. They typically just kind of sweep that under the rug, you know, if, if you and I were fighting and you got me hurt, if they weren't going to make it a storyline, I would just like be off TV for a little bit. And then I would come back okay and maybe we'd fight again, who knows. But typically they don't stick that stigma on any wrestler. However, in this show, they're like, Vader's hurt half the roster. He's a fucking animal. And so when Ric Flair is going up against him, they treat it not like, hey, if he loses, he has to retire. That sucks. They treat it like, hey, he's going to die tonight. Like, kiss daddy goodbye before he leaves because he ain't coming home because he's going to die in the ring. And I think that's absolutely hysterical how fucking overblown and serious they treat it like, oh, Vader's gonna fucking kill this guy. He showed up hours early and has just been training in the ring with an old guy, and Ric Flair's in a suit, and he's, everyone's dressed for a funeral because he's dying tonight! It was. It, I think that's absolutely hysterical in retrospect.
0: No, that's, that's precisely what it seemed like. If you think about it all, yes, your career on the line, but Rick, you've seen what this guy Vader has done. Numerous opponents over the years. I mean, he's absolutely decimated.
1: Gene, I knew what Vader was about
0: before I signed the contract. So, uh alright, so is Starcade I mean, am I just am I am I making connections that aren't there that it's it's Starcade and this guy's name is Vader? I, I guess I just I'm I'm totally caught off guard by this.
1: No no no, it's that has nothing to do with it. Starcade is sort of like um imagine like a baby WrestleMania. Uh, okay. WCW would have like a couple of big big shows throughout the year, and Starcade was one of them. So they'd have one every year. So that's why they started tacking the dates on because like they didn't do like Starcade two, Starcade three. They would just be like, I don't know, it's Starcade nineteen eighty five. So it's like match game. Um, so they would just tack a year onto it. So this is the this is the one from nineteen ninety three. Okay, all right, and so Vader. Uh, As much
0: as he was just someone that is like a 400-pound dude, and so he had uh, intentionally or otherwise hurt a lot of other wrestlers, and they turned this into a big storyline, but he was the champion of WCW at the time, Um, and that's, I think, leading into my next big question here is wrestlers of Vader's body type. Am I wrong in thinking that they don't often end up being the champion because often they're the Goliath in these
1: storylines that needs to be taken down
0: by somebody like Ric Flair?
1: True. Very true. Yeah, typically your big guys, that's not to say that they are not never champion, but usually the narrative is like the hero has to overcome something. So like typically they just don't really get a lot of championship runs because they don't really need it. They can always just be like, oh my God, it's a giant insurmountable guy. So, Because this guy you know, looks like if Stone Cold ate another Stone Cold. Well, he used to be a football player. So he's like legitimately a big, tough son of a bitch. So right. like, because of that, he's 400 plus pounds. He's a huge, strong dude. So that's why like he would get kind of rough sometimes. And he was never like purposely trying to hurt people. But sometimes he would be a little stiff. And so that's why people got hurt. They mentioned Sting. They mentioned Cactus Jack. Guys sometimes got hurt. But they never really brought it up as a thing until this show where they're like, he's fucking reckless and he'll he'll kill anybody. And so, like, that's sort of the thing.
0: Which, by the way, um, and he came in at the end to congratulate Ric Flair, not to skip to the end, but um, I had no idea that Sting from The Police was so muscular and I was a professional wrestler. I mean, I mean, he must have been, like, bench pressing a goddamn piano when he wrote Desert Rose.
1: I fucking, again, that's and, five. Uh, I hate this show. Hang
0: on, I got one more. Um, in the ring, I bet his opponents must be sending out an SOS.
1: I don't want to do this segment anymore. I don't want to talk about this anymore. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Anyways.
0: Okay, so back so, in. How old was Ric Flair at this point?
1: Oh, great question. Um, Let's see. 84, let me find out. I gotta do the math real quick Because
0: from what I know about you, uh, good buddy, is that, like, I feel like Ric Flair at this point and moving forward is just your absolute favorite type of persona where they are just, they have been wrestling for way too long. They know they shouldn't be wrestling anymore. Their doctor is probably recommending to them on a regular basis, like, you really need to stop doing this. Like, you uh, are going to hurt yourself very badly and they keep going. And I feel like that's, that's your favorite era of wrestler.
1: Yeah. To a certain extent. Um, so Ric Flair was 44. At wow. Show.
0: He looks 70.
1: <laughs> well, he's kind of always looked like that. So, yeah. Um,
0: okay. And then this, this guy, uh, the gravelly, uh, like suited man outside of the ring. That's Harley
1: race. Yes.
0: That's Vader's manager.
1: Yes. And he was another great champion, great wrestler, but he had hung it up by this time. So he was just sort of, um, you know, because in in, in a case like Vader, you know, there's a certain element of like sideshow awe from the crowd of seeing someone that size be able to move as fluidly as he as he could, because guys his size typically were kind of like Frankenstein monsters. Like they would just sort of like walk very slowly and they had sort of a limited moveset. He could move really well for a guy his size. So oftentimes crowds would kind of get into that because they were like, this guy's going to beat the shit out of everybody. That's awesome. So by sticking Harley Race with him, who was just universally booed, you would ensure that he was going to be booed. Right. Okay. That makes sense.
0: And then just to continue to round out setting the scene for everybody. And then you had, uh, once again, Jesse Ventura just shouting at the top of his lungs on commentary with someone else. Yes, Tony Schiavone was who he was okay. uh, announced as well. Okay. Because this is a
1: different company, so...
0: Great. All right, so then that's... Um, so so that's the roster. So so to get into the match here, I guess um, there's a few things that I noticed. Uh, so obviously you, you're dealing with a lot of the expected things of this huge, enormous man just sort of like tossing uh, Rick ac- across the ring and out of the yeah. ring. Yeah. Um, But another thing I really noticed that I maybe haven't uh, or have ignored or suspended my disbelief uh, a little more of up until this particular match is just how much... Close-ups will do a disservice for some of these moves. Yes, uh, like there's there's one point where Rick like drags Vader to one of the poles at the ropes and acts as if he's going to sort of slam his leg up against it, and in reality bends his leg at the knee against it as if he's like working his joint out at a chiropractor or something. Yes, um, and and then another moment where he is on top of uh, Vader and is punching him in the face. Um, but there's a camera right up there and it's like, oh, you're punching an invisible wall half an inch away from Vader's
1: face. Yeah, a little bit. Now, now I will say this is probably one of like the more, I would say like old school type of wrestling matches in terms of like, it's very Southern. It's very easy. The, the story of like the big bad guy and the, the underdog is, is the champ that we all want. Um, and so this is definitely your like older type of wrestling of everything we watched, even beyond Hulk Hogan and Macho Man. Like that was more of an old storytelling in terms of like, they're just going to do a couple of big spots and get the crowd crazy. This was like the knockdown drag out. And although you're right in terms of, there are definitely things that miss by a mile. um There is a certain level of brutality to this match, in my opinion, like Ric Flair chops the shit out of Vader at several points and Vader's like, nah. And then at some points uh Vader would like do like a back body drop or body slam Flair and Flair just lands Like a pile of laundry and you can Hear him go like oh Jesus When he hits the mat like you're like oh god this is awful like don't hurt him Jesus yeah. <laughs> don't hurt this old
0: man there is one don't point where he 40, like four year old gent <laughs> yeah, there is one point where he like drops them onto the uh, the metal railing separating the audience and it's yeah. <laughs> Rico like oh <laughs> yeah, he's definitely going to be bruised
1: yeah seriously he's definitely going to be bruised
0: Um, okay so here's one of my biggest questions uh, that, that has come up now that I've seen this match here um, and, and I guess it was a question that i had before but it never quite came up to this extent so i cannot think of any other form of media that shares talent with its competition as much as professional wrestling (laughs) do
1: non-compete clauses not exist in wrestling contracts um in the older days they did not nearly they, they very rarely existed and now they do but it's still a limited amount of time so, like, even now, like, if you leave the WWE and they still had you in some form of contract, you might have a non-compete for 90 days, maybe a year at the most. But by no means is it, like, a forever thing. So, yeah, like, Jesse Ventura quit WWF and jump ship to WCW to be their commentary guy. And, you know, Ric Flair uh, had some issues with the... Um, with the management of WCW, so he quit in 1992 and went over to WWF. And in that case, he carried their goddamn belt with him over to WWF because he had put the deposit down on it, so technically he owned it. Like, there was a lot of weird shit that happened in in wrestling. So yeah, there's a lot of jumping of ship more so than like movies or anything else although you know there's been people who have played multiple superheroes and stuff so it's not like completely unheard of well that's but. true but in my
0: mind this would be almost like if uh, you know the creator of the fairly odd parents was just like hey I'm going to go make a show for Cartoon Network now like you know true. right in the early 2000s and then and it's called fairly odd jesus
1: and it's really it's going to be really
0: good <laughs> well um so so he was nature boy for WCW
1: and... Yeah, but he kind of owned that name, so he carried that everywhere he went. Oh, okay, but I thought he was
0: something else Ric Flair at some point.
1: No, he's basically always been the nature boy. He's always been the nature boy? In, even the WWF and stuff like that, yeah.
0: So, what what does that mean? Does that mean that, like, there are, uh, he cuts promos where he's, like, surrounded by, like, deer and, like, flora and fauna? and, and he...
1: No, that was a gimmick that someone else had previous to him, and he just sort of stole it, but it was, like, the 60s, so nobody really cared. And oh. then he's just kind of carried it on ever since. Um. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just sort of like he just called it him. He just said it and it just had a good ring to it. And everyone was like, yeah, let's just stick with that forever. So so here's my other question about Ric Flair is that, uh, you know, being that this
0: is the first official match of his that you've had me watch, uh, I, I guess I've always been under the impression that he was a, like, Macho Man Randy Savage in the sense that his persona was always this crazy, larger-than-life Like, you know, shouting and getting red in the face and showing his white ass. um, Right. That 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 was pretty much it. There was no notes below that. And yet this is so subdued. I mean, he gets out of there and he's, he's cutting promos like he's goddamn Obama. He's just like, well, that Vader he's a great wrestler, and I'm honored to be here. You know, instead of just right. the woo and stuff like you would True, expect. True, which
1: you're absolutely right. I showed you the one match in his career when it's, like, serious business because he's like, I may die. And, like, it's like, there's no, you can't woo that. You can't throw your jacket down and elbow drop it because you're you're about to die. It's just sort of like, this is the one somber sort of affair. Um, and so, so, overall, before I kind of, um, before I, I tell you something absolutely buck wild, um walk me through what you thought of the match overall and how you feel this fits in sort of the grander uh mosaic that we're building of wrestling. So I guess correct me if I, this was 93,
0: correct? This is 1993. Okay. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess um this does seem like a transitional type match in terms of what the culture wanted from professional wrestling moving forward. That they wanted to maybe abandon the, like, I want to see two superheroes go in the ring and just you know like nobody n- nothing hurts and we're you know everything is larger than life and all of that and moving into more of what became the attitude era in terms of there is a real brutality to it and it's like if there was blood great let's get a close-up on that you know let's let's That's let's... a
1: great great analysis yeah this definitely was more of a sign of things to come versus a sign of things that were no longer in style hmm, right okay
0: Well, then, that was my main takeaway from it. Um, I I will say, very interesting to see Ric Flair being very unlike Ric Flair. True. Although
1: I will say, in terms of fighting, there's a lot of very normal Ric Flair shit in this. Although, shockingly enough, he was able to jump off the top rope three times. That is unheard of for Ric Flair. Really? He always he climbs up the rope every match, but someone grabs him by the dick and throws him off. (laughs) I had never seen up until this match. I had never seen him actually jump off the top rope. And he does it three times in this match. And (laughs) one of them is terrible, by the way. He misses Vader by a fucking mile. And commentary is like, oh, he didn't quite get all of it. I'm like, he got none of it. He fucking missed him. (laughs) So um,
0: why is it a pre-established thing when it comes to jumping off the top rope that if you land on the opponent, then oh my God, you just destroyed them. Their life is over. Um, But if you miss them, they roll out of the way. Then you just like hit a brick wall. And you are
1: now it's it's all on you. I mean, sure. It's high risk, high reward. That's why. So, if you risk it all, then you get extra bonus points to your attack. But if you risk it all and they move, then you take extra damage. Hmm. Okay. All right. Fair enough. It's wrestling logic. I don't know. Okay. So, um... Any other notes before I drop in a weird little tidbit about this? Hmm. Um, I think those are the main things. I think other than that, a lot of it just
0: went sort of as expected. I mean, you know, a, a lot of the matches we've watched so far weren't necessarily a surprise based on what the mm-hmm. story was, especially the ones where you've shown me promos first, where you've shown me like, here's our hero, ladies and gentlemen, and I'd be maybe curious moving forward to see one that did subvert expectations. I don't know how often that happens, where it's like, here's the hero, you expect he's gonna come and then the heel just crushes him and moves on. Um I'd be interested in something like that. But yeah, I mean this was fairly expected in terms of yeah he's gonna take a hard beating and then he's gonna you know come out on top.
1: Okay. So I said at the very beginning of this I kind of teased that like this was somewhat thought up on the fly. So when Starkade ninety three was originally announced and was originally being promoted, the main event was not Vader versus Flair for the title the original main event was Vader versus someone who they were really pushing at the time a giant dude named Sid Vicious that was going to be the big basically it was going to be like monster versus monster it was going to be two giant dudes battling it out for the championship hmm. however uh behind the scenes after um you know um, super brawl which was like the last or No, not before Super Bowl. So it was basically the show before this. um, Sid Vicious, behind the scenes, fucking stabbed another wrestler with a pair of scissors. Oh my God. And so they like basically fired him on the spot. And then they were like, holy shit, we need a new fucking ending for this show now. And so they just threw Ric Flair in. So that's why Ric Flair puts his career on the line. Because they were like, just a regular title match with Ric Flair and Vader, who had fought before, was not going to necessarily, like, get asses in seats. But to have it be like, oh my god, if Ric Flair loses, then he's done forever, was why they threw that that stipulation in to try to spice up the sauce a little bit. Because otherwise it was just like, hey, we're replacing Sid Vicious with Ric Flair, who people loved, don't get me wrong, it's not like it was a downgrade considerably, but in terms of, like, narrative-wise, you're going from it's goddamn Godzilla versus King Kong to it's Godzilla versus Godzuki. And it's like, wait, what? No, nobody wants that. Or Godzilla versus a completely different film. Like, wait, what? So to try to keep it that level, they introduced the whole like, oh, Flair will retire if he loses.
0: Hmm. Okay. Well, I guess that makes more sense. Um, And was this often a stake that would be uh, offered, like, hey, if I lose, I'm done. I'm out of the game.
1: You usually would do, like, a loser leaves town. Hmm. So, like, back in the territory days, it would be, like, a feud between you and I and be like, look, whoever loses this match, you're out of town, baby. And so one of us would lose, and then we would just go work other companies for a while.
0: Hmm. Um so obviously that would usually be something that would be lined up with their legitimate career moves like, Hey listen, I just exactly. signed a contract with WCW and so you're gonna need to defeat me so I can go do that. Exactly. You're gonna need to pin me so
1: that I can go put on a mask and go wrestle somewhere else for a little bit. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So that's so that's part of like I said, we're we're sort of we kinda cut in the middle here. We went, you know, late eighties and then we've we've dabbled in the attitude era and so this was sort of in between those two things. Um, In, like I said, what is considered a doldrum of wrestling overall, but was not necessarily a, a low point for WCW. Interestingly enough, and we'll leave it on this, that during the Attitude Era for WWE, when it was really hitting its best numbers and was really feuding with WCW, once we got into the new millennium, WWE was able to maintain the momentum, whereas WCW, on the other hand, completely fell apart and shit the bed. So that's where, who knows, that might be a sign of things to come, but nevertheless... Tien is still somewhat ambivalent about wrestling. I'm still over explaining. And that's the name of the show, people. So we hope you've enjoyed this podcast within a podcast. Let's get back to the show. One, two, three. And we are back. Again, apologies for over explaining and rambling about, um, you know, people in in their undies fighting in front of, uh, you know, weird southerners i like that i was so against uh big southern accents but i'm all in favor of like these southern goofs in in north carolina you know being like oh is that a man riding a shrimp on top of vader like it was ridiculous <laughs> anyway that's all that welcome back to the traditional show frightful fairs zach around tian Gagnol, and it is time for us to flex our creative muscle and fix these two films So, Tien, let's start with uh, House 2, The Second Story, which that title should tell you everything you need to know about this movie because it's a company going, eh? Pretty clever, right? And you roll your eyes and go, you you get it. Fucking idiots. Did you notice how uh, the protagonist,
0: like Jesse and that, kind of looks like Steve Coogan? Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. He definitely has a Coogan esque look to him. Okay, well, I mean, I, I do have a primary fix for this, but but I wanted to to kind of tackle some of the smaller pieces of it first and, and see you know what we kind of thought about that. So instead of Bill Maher, we could have gotten like John Oliver in there maybe. Um, okay, I think that might have been like a good alternative in terms of having like. Or, 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 you know what, had Bill Maher and John Oliver, and they are partners, like, that's how they show up to the parties, that they are lovers, and okay. they just sort of back and forth with each other about politics from the future, because remember, the whole crew of this movie is are time travelers, so that's they, true. they know what's to come. Uh, so I, I was going to say,
1: maybe maybe have Jon Stewart come in before he got, like, sad and gray-haired, like, he would have been good. He's um, like a Steve you know. Martin, he's always had gray hair. I'm pretty well, sure in no. Big Daddy he's got gray hair. Well, I mean, that's true. Maybe he always he always darkened it for the the. Why are we talking about this anyway? Um, <laughs> no, this is important. Okay, that's that's not bad... <laughs> Did he or did he not dye his hair? No. Um. I think one way to 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 solve this would have been instead of like you could you could still keep Gramps. You could still keep the anthology thing, but instead of having the Slick Dick McGraw, ghost. Instead, have it be like another explorer or scientist who also knows about the skull, and is also trying to get a hold of it, like a like a doctor or a, um, a Mr. Crocker from Fairly Odd Parents, oh, okay. who's like obsessed with the skull, and then like maybe gets it at some point and gets magical powers and becomes even more powerful and evil, and something like that, because then that would make more sense in terms of like. Oh, it's it is like a quantum leap sort of thing, and he wants it for science, and blah blah blah, and it belongs in a museum, something like that. Um, and then maybe, maybe uh, the the electrician is like working for the CIA, and like knows that Crocker's coming to steal the skull, and like has had things on an investigation for a while, and that's why he's an explorer because he's undercover, something like that. That would kind of like build up this world a little bit, as opposed to just like. Nothing matters in the zippity zoop house. Like, th- there's no rules. Like, at least that way it would be like, oh, there's a reasoning for things. And there's, like, a chase that's sort of happening. As opposed to just like, I don't know. Here's the jungle scene. Now it's over. Now we're moving on to something else. Also, we didn't talk about this... What did you think about the ending when- I literally was just
0: going to bring that up. That that that, yeah. that uh, we, we literally did not mention that at all in the actual segment. But it ends with a straight up epilogue that he goes back to the Old West to bury Gramps. And then he just leaves the Crystal Skull sitting on a pile of rocks. Which I understand that they're saying like, Oh, this means nothing to me and I don't want any, it, any part of it. But like, you still know that it's super powerful and mystic. Why don't you leave it out in the open for just anyone to... To come along. So here's my fix is that uh he leaves the crystal skull on a pile of rocks out in the open at Gramps' grave in the Old West and then you see a pair of cowboy boots walk over and lean down and pick it up and it stands up and it's uh, the, the camera pans up and it's goddamn Doc Brown.
1: There you go. That would fucking solve it real quick. Because well, like I yeah, said, franchise, you know, that's what they the, wanted. The and even grams tells him that too he's like figure out what you want and then get rid of the skull but you got to be careful not to let it fall into the wrong hands because it could like undo the world and fucking Jesse's Jesse's response to that is oh, fuck it i'm just going to leave it here. i don't give a shit like what the what the fuck and then and and charles charlie who's a big asshole uh, is like oh i'm an entrepreneur i guess he's just living in the old west now too and so is silent tribeswoman who will know her damn place like what the fuck is going on and it felt very much like they just sort of were like I don't know man there's your ending I guess like it just it, it seemed like it was trying to uh, trying to wrap things up in a nice little bow but they didn't have like a good enough idea and they are like I don't know man they're all cowboys now fuck it
0: it, 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 it truly feels like they were trying to set up for the sequel like they were trying to be like Toxin the Old West he's alive um and it did feel very much like a ripoff of that but but once again time frame wise i mean back to the future 2 came out in uh, 88 i thought oh maybe yeah you might be right hold on time frame with this this thing came out in 87 because first back to the future came out in 85 you know right um i'm
1: not sure when two came out hold either on, way I'm doing research i'm doing research i'm doing research I'm doing research. It came out in 89. Holy shit. There you go. See? You see what I'm saying
0: here about this whole future thing? So here's my real fix. They should have not been so subtle about what obviously was their gift, that they had a real crystal skull that was transporting them through time and they were watching movies from the future. They should have just went full for it. So, um... uh, just go full Jumanji have the skull like open up and there's a board game inside it. And that way when they open up the room and it's suddenly a jungle and they walk into the jungle, I mean, you can just go full Jumanji at this point, maybe, uh, uh, the the friend Charlie starts turning into a monkey at one point. Uh, I mean yeah. that would
1: have been an, an improvement. Yeah. yeah, for sure.
0: So I, I feel like that,
1: that the, the,
0: and and you know what go way further into the future. Surely this crystal skull of theirs did not have much of a you know uh, actual time frame on how far they could go. So they could have been like, hey, by the way, giant eight foot tall blue people, and they have sex with their tails. I how mean that, that
1: would have been an improvement. So, uh,
0: yeah, I mean, go even beyond where we're at now. I mean, tell me, uh, I mean, do all the Avatar
1: sequels at that point. If you, it, <laughs> That's well, what this all comes down to, is well, Avatar yeah. sequels. <laughs> also, um, if you've got time travel capabilities, how about you fucking tell Steven Spielberg to knock it off trying to make a Crystal Skull fucking movie? Because mm. that one sucked out loud. Yeah, they could have just, uh, they could have made it and then gone back into the future and be like, mm-mm,
0: no, learn from our mistakes. It didn't work. Nobody liked it. Don't try it, and he would have been like, oh, "Okay, all right, fine, I won't do it." Won't, won't also, do
1: it. this felt like they the the space time jumps in this movie felt a lot like it was dependent on whatever they had easy access to in terms of like costuming and stuff. Well, yeah, so they're like, they, "Oh, they're they
0: they filming this on a backlot, and they're like, like, uh, dig through the old, you know, dig through the leftovers, they're the lost and found. What do we got in there? Barbarian costume? Oh my God, is that a is that a?" pterodactyl baby puppet in there
1: great let's use that right that's definitely what it felt like um, so yeah I think, I think that's a solution I think uh, I think my Crocker idea I think you just turn it into Avatar is a great idea um,
0: <laughs> well I mean that, that's an easy fix is just make any movie an Avatar because it's a perfect I, film I mean
1: we almost have to take that off the table in terms of like that's true. that would literally solve any film's problem it would what about the characters that just fucking disappear would you do anything with them uh in terms of the like bill maher kate the ex-girlfriend um the the electrician um the party guests the people who took him in as a baby there's a shitload of side characters that are just like well goodbye and that's it like maybe, you do anything with any
0: of them well maybe the big reveal is that when they get to the Uga booga people at the end they take their masks off and it's like bill maher and all the party guests and it's like they've been in on it the
1: whole time, and they were after the crystal skull. That would make no sense, and yet it would be the most sensible thing going on in this movie. It would it would have the most grounded in reality aspects. I would yeah. be like, okay, it's news to me, but okay, yeah, I can live no, with this. absolutely.
0: I think uh, make Bill Maher the the Mister Crocker character. Honestly, one hundred
1: percent correct. The fact that they didn't have Bill Maher Prime Bill Maher, who is genuinely an asshole in this movie, the fact that they did not fucking have him have his comeuppance, yeah, like, and he snitched on the on Jesse getting like sexually assaulted by his ex, like he goes and immediately snitches on him with his current girlfriend just to be a cock block, and gets no comeuppance, like he's just like, yeah, I ruined your whole relationship. Fuck you! I'm driving away with her. You know we gonna fuck in the back seat. Like anyway, so long. Here are the end credits. Like what the hell? Yeah, you know, um, you, you could have had that scene where, uh,
0: you know, Bill is sort of confidently. Uh, goading Jesse to open up the cabinet and reveal what is his ex is in there or whatever. And right. meanwhile it's sort of this uh, you know, wacky slapstick situation where in reality he knows that Gramps the zombie is in there. Um but you could have just spun that situation around and had Bill Maher like Well, if you're not going to show me that there are fairies inside this cabinet here, I mean, that would have been great. I think Switch out
1: fairies for mummies and then do that again. Do another take. Okay, all right, here we go. Take two. Mm. Uh. You know, Donald Trump. God damn you. God damn (laughs) you. Also, I came up with the perfect idea. You ready? Okay. So, end of the movie, blah, 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 Old West. They buried Gramps. The skull's on there, right? Yes. Then you see the cowboy boots come over. Okay. Pick up the crystal skull, it's Bill Maher with like a big mustache or something like that. Oh
0: yes. And okay. Jesse's
1: like, Oh, hey, what's your name there, Cowboy? And he's like, Oh, I'm Bill Mar the second or whatever. He's I'm Bill like, Mar What are Creek you Grandpa. looking at, Butthead? Yeah, there you go. And then he's oh, no, he's like, What are you looking at? Liberal? And uh and so then Jesse's like, Cool Wait, is this and uh, then, are
0: we changing around Bill Maher is now like He's, he's like Alex Jones
1: now all of a sudden. I don't know. He, Bill Mar is also just kind of an asshole, so I don't know. Um, okay. Uh, so then Jesse's like, oh, you're Bill Mar's ancestor? Great. And then guns him down so that Bill Maher never exists. And, like, he's like, now I know he's not going to bang my ex-girlfriend. Like... <laughs> That's how he solves it, is like, I'll just end his whole goddamn bloodline right here. You know, that's
0: fantastic. Actually, I think that, uh, that's a better fix than anything. So, uh, screw all the Crystal Skull stuff, take away the Barbarian, the Prehistoric Puppy, Dog, Caterpillar, everything else, and just have it a movie about a relatable film in which, actually, you know what, you do still have the Crystal Skull. Here's the movie, uh... Bill Maher comes in and bangs your girlfriend and now right. you find a mystical relic that allows you to travel back in time and you were going to hunt down every single relative of this man and murder them in cold blood so that he never exists to cuck you out.
1: Yeah. And then, and your, your line every time before you shoot one of his relatives, you just go, Hey. Stan Lee sends his regards, boom, and then fucking kill, and they're like, who's Stan Lee? And you, bam, and then they're dead. That's right. No, that's perfect. Um, yeah,
0: no, I think that would be really relatable. I think that, uh, you know, uh, as is often a demographic we are trying to reach, uh, it, it would be a movie for incels. Um, that it's uh, <laughs> every...
1: <laughs> every that's the prime, mm, So such a... Such an untapped demographic. We yes, got to really that, uh, cash that in is, on
0: that. Is truly, I mean, you want to appeal to everyone that has ever been shunned. Um, that any woman that has not given you sex for for holding a door open for her, that you can go back in time and murder her relatives so she never existed. I think that which would is basically
1: be... the which is basically the subplot of the woman that they saved. So there you go. <laughs> Essentially, well, that's a great fix. Excellent. Je- um. Yeah, we change it from House Two to. Jesse, King of the Incels, and fucking call it a day.
0: Uh, Jesse, House 2, The Rise of Taj. There you go. Um, okay, so um, so God let's go it. ahead and move on to Haunting
1: in Connecticut to The Ghost of Georgia. Well, I think the easiest fix first is you fucking <laughs> fix that title. Because why the fuck is it called that?
0: Yeah, uh, so what you call it is um, Haunting in Georgia, Ghosts from
1: Connecticut, Connecticut? question mark? Well, no, you would do some bullshit like from the haunting, maybe you could even go like from the haunting in Connecticut universe, the ghosts of Georgia. Oh, I see. Haunting in, okay. So, so it's like, cause I was almost going to say, you could almost say like,
0: Annabelle from, presents.
1: From, yes. First of all,
0: yes. <laughs>
1: Second of all, the Annabelles of Georgia. Yes. Um, oh my God. Well, this is fixing itself. Wait a minute. Annabelle? Southern Belle? Holy shit, we got a fucking winner here, folks! Oh my god,
0: you're right. And, I mean, obviously, okay, so she's... Oh my god, I got it. Okay, so Heidi, she actually... She she gets killed by the, uh, the Slave Master character, Ghost. Right. The really racist Ghost. Um, is that he, he wins. He murders Heidi. And the mother, in grief makes a doll they make a doll and and she like uh, infuses it with the spirit of the girl or some, something i don't know we'll make it up as we go along um and the doll and then the doll turns around and it's annabelle and it winks at the camera
1: perfect perfect it winks and flashes one boob um because you got to get that rated r oh um, my god yes so other than fixing the title like even if you said something like from the Haunting Chronicles or something like that. So okay. you do Haunting in Connecticut, you do Haunting in Georgia, blah, blah, blah. And then you could do, like, a almost like that. Like, you could do something like that and then just have it be Ghosts of Georgia, which is still a terrible name. You could come up with something better. But um The Station Master Rings Twice. I don't know. Something like that. But point is, you change the title first. Then, I don't know, man. You the, It's based on a true story, so you can't change the family into a black family, which would have made a lot more sense.
0: Mm, yeah. I mean, you could have, but that would have made a lot of... Uh, that would have
1: made for a very uncomfortable ending.
0: Well, I mean, yes. In
1: credits, that's like, oh, and here's the family it was based off of, look at these fucking bags of funions that this fucking story is taken from. Like,
0: Listen, if there's one thing that we know movie viewers don't want, it's for you to turn a white character into a person of color. That's correct. the last thing correct. any true uh, cinemaphile wants.
1: Not hashtag, not my dumb fuck family. So, um, so how do you fix this movie? First of all, I would tighten up the editing a little bit. This movie was only like an hour 20 hour 30, if that, no, it was an hour 40 and it felt like a lifetime. Like everything yes. just kind of meandered around and just was sort of like, yeah, well, we're going to get to that next plot point eventually. But like, it was like the movie's pacing had a Southern drawl, like, yeah, yeah. Them ghosts are going to be coming around here in just a couple minutes. Here's a raccoon trap. That's pretty neato. It was pretty neato. Maybe you could sell those locks for... Like, what the fuck? What am I watching? So I would tighten up the pacing a little bit. Okay, yeah,
0: that's fair. Uh, Pacing could be tightened up. Um, Gosh, uh, you know... It really, I mean, and this is obviously a careful line, like we've walked before, of, of you know, we, we're very PC on this show, and so we want to... Right,
1: turn it know. into Avatar,
0: yes. Uh, yeah, well, okay, yeah, yeah, I mean, turn it into Avatar. But also, um, maybe that's the real secret, is that we just set it on an alien planet, and that way there's no, like, racial undertone there, that they're all that's blue. That's true, that would help, that mm-hmm. would help. Yeah, I
1: could um, No, I would make... And like I said before, when I kind of spun into this, it seriously, I would separate the Station Master into a good and an evil character just to make a much easier narrative. Um, they could be twins, too. Oh, that would be even better. Yeah, that's great. That's a great idea. Oh, my it's God. I got else. it. Okay, and so they're played... Twin Annabelles!
0: They're twin Annabelles! That's a good, okay, that, that works. That works. I was going to say uh, that they are the Christian Bale's characters from The Prestige. Um, And that that's the big reveal at the end that it's like, how come this guy's nice sometimes and then other times he's taxidermying slaves? I don't get it. And then it's the big reveal at the end is that it's like, oh my God, there's two Christian Bales
1: this whole time. And have Christian Bale play the station master. Well, but also, can you not agree that like it would have helped if there was some slightly more weird taxidermied
0: shit in the movie? I mean, yeah, you really only get, like, one shot of the actual, like, corpses
1: themselves. They look gross, but I mean, like... Yeah, but not even that, though. Like, they literally just mention in passing, like, oh, yeah, he's a taxidermy guy. Like, not like they find an area with, like, weirdly put-together animals or something like that. Just to kind of give us any kind of indicator other than it was, like it felt like they were the last day of filming. They're like, what if he's a taxidermy guy? Like that kind of shit.
0: Yeah. Um, There should have been a scene where the mom walks into a room of taxidermy and she spins around and goes, this is a lovely room of death.
1: God damn you. I was just about to say, you mentioned Christian Bale. That reminds me that if you took the ghosts out of haunting in Connecticut too, it feels like a weird Christian, like it could be a weird Christian motion picture film. That's fair. Like it's just way like they're all just sort of smile like even the part where the preacher's like, "Oh, you might be getting yourselves a lot of visitors," and it's like, "Well, I hope they're living." You say what? <laughs> like, oh, they gotta learn to live with ghosts. Uh, you know blah, what? Blah, that's
0: blah. that 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 gives me a great idea actually. Perhaps the real fix to this movie is that because it already has this sort of like family undertone and it has this warm kind of fuzzy feeling, and that's how the movie ends. Maybe the main character of the movie no longer becomes the mom, and we're not really seeing most of the movie through her perspective, but it becomes a talking dog, where it's like a, it's, yeah.
1: No, I got one better for you. Okay. Mr. Gordy, the weird old man who, like, is trying to help out the girl and kind of teaches her to be a sociopath. Uh Uh-huh. He's not an old southern landowner. He's Jesus. Oh, my God. And he comes in and he's like, "Oh, I'm here to help. All right, I'm here to deliver you." Wow. I mean, I'm uh, I'm kind
0: of welling up right now. So, but but Jesus would would teach this girl how to manipulate her mother.
1: Yes. Let's talk about that. That's my other solution. Is that the ghost subplot actually ends at the halfway point, and then we time jump, and she's literally a serial killer because. <sighs> that scene in the goddamn hospital was so, that was the scariest scene in the movie was this little girl being like, yeah, I lied and everyone believed me and you got in trouble for it. Like, so
0: you're saying that this girl essentially becomes like the son of Sam and becomes like a religious serial killer.
1: Literally. I was waiting for after she's like, Oh, it sucks when no one believes you. Right. And the mom like has this really shocked look. I was waiting for Heidi to like burn her forearm or something and be like, oops, looks like that's going to be five years in prison for you like that kind of like holy shit like that th- that was very alarming to me yeah no that was, it
0: was very very scary um and i think that would be a really good twist because not a lot of movies uh, and and they're cowards really have had the balls to do jesus as a villain you know, he's right. always like the hero or it's like a sympathetic story about like, look, he got like put on this big like T or whatever, um, you know, but, but not a lot of people
1: have said, have done the Jesus as a villain story. He, and I he think was that would be a nice the, twist. He was put on the big T and now he's come back to serve up the T. That's right. And now everyone's got, actually, that would be the tagline for the movie. It would be from the haunting series, Ghost of Georgia, the tagline this time, Jesus is the bad guy
0: oh okay i thought you meant the tagline would be like this time it's tea time or, or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what happens the ghosts come up all shitty 13 ghosts jump scare static style and they're like <laughs> and then joyce is just like well lisa you dumb bitch the one thing you should have done if you're gonna have these ghosts over was offer them some good sweet tea in the afternoon Come on in, the old Casper old son of a bitch.
0: Oh, well, that's just what I wanted the whole time. That's, that's what I, I can't communicate. That's what uh, I you... tell. Told... I'm, I'm your dead mom, and I just said that you should let him in. I meant literally into your house for some iced tea and lemonade.
1: Right, exactly. Like, all right, you little taxidermy little beast thing. You get your little cocksucking ass over here, you sew your <laughs> ass in this chair, and have some sweet tea, you little all bitch.
0: Right, okay, I guess I will. It's been a while. I'm parched. And now, that's a like good... A, yeah.
1: There you go. And then they all befriend them. And that's how, to the power of overindulgence of southern, you know, foods, that's how they all get together.
0: Yeah. And then the last, I'd say, 30 minutes of the movie is just a long nap. Because, you know, after you have a lot of, like, you know, southern fried chicken and biscuits and gravy, I mean, you you get the itis right afterwards. you got to take it's, a long exactly. nap.
1: And you know what? If it was 30 minutes of just all the characters <laughs> sleeping soundly, including the ghosts a thousand times more interesting than what actually happened in this film uh,
0: no I agree completely I agree completely and Jesus is there just sort of uh, do you think Jesus would be sleeping as well or do you think he would be watching up from the ceiling
1: um he would be um I think he's snoozing I think on the seventh day he rests yeah do you think he takes his little spiky crown off when he
0: you know goes to sleep
1: he uh, he takes it off when he comes in the room and hangs on the door he goes is it Christmas already <laughs> am I right
0: that is my ideal Jesus, I'd say. He a truly joke, is sir. a superstar.
1: Yeah. Well, there you go. I well, think these there's the fix. Yeah.
0: Wow. Two great fixes. Excellent. Well, uh, wow. Another couple films in the bag, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what are we uh promoting? What what what's what's the gimmick this week, buddy?
1: Oh, I don't know. Good question. I don't know. I just recently came off hosting a Kaiju Big Battle Show, which that was weird. That should be up soon. And oh, also. Uh, we at Fully Gimmick commissioned a traditional anime artist to do a Pokemon trainer version of the uh, feminist icon slash weapon of sass destruction wrestler Effie, and all of the regular anime fans of that artist don't know what the fuck is going on, and it is going to open up some eyeballs, and it's going to be very entertaining. That's excellent.
0: That's very, yeah. very excellent. Well, very good, and so all of that can be found at uh, either FullyGimmick.com or on YouTube. Yeah, we're on
1: social media, uh, we're on Twitter and all that. And speaking of social media, feel free to go explore Frightful Failures all over various outlets and social media, uh, Instagram and Twitter and all that. Yep, uh, Frightful
0: Failures on Instagram, at FrightFailures on Twitter for us. And in terms of your YouTube channel, for uh, you're, you're going to be putting up the Kaiju Big Battle show, what is your YouTube channel just for the wrestling?
1: Well, uh, I have no clue, so we'll see how that goes. Well,
0: some good promos. Um, Excellent. Yeah,
1: so uh, nevertheless, though, if we are looking at wrestling stuff I am participating in, uh, if you look at the ACW Wrestling YouTube channel, I've been hosting that show for uh, quite a while now. We've been putting on some real unbelievable shows. I will say two weeks ago, we put up a show that was the closest that we've ever come to having a full-blown punk pro show on a Wednesday. Uh, Really excellent stuff. And so go check that out. You can hear me on commentary being very obnoxious. And uh, yeah, lots of good things coming up. And of course, for any of the the listening public out there, if you've got suggestions, you've got films you want us to break down or fix, or uh, things that we should stop talking about for the love of Christ, let us know. And since we are in the summer season, I think Tian and I are going to be taking a slight uh, departure from the norm. And that does not mean that we'll be taking huge quaffs of time before posting. That will always remain consistent. Nor does it mean that it will take. We will take huge departures of how the show is built or constructed. That will always remain the same. The show will literally change every episode because fuck consistency. No, instead we're going to be uh, diverging a little bit away from horror films and try some uh, some different. Uh, uh, films to shit on and explore and potentially fix over the summer so that's right that's correct it's
0: a vacation for us it's a vacation for all of you um you know we we yeah uh, you know, it can't be horror all the time just like 90 percent of the year it's horror. right exactly but but this is going to be just a little departure in which we you know we we'll, well you know who knows what we're going to into a little action maybe a little comedy yeah. a little romance maybe i mean there's always a little romance on this show but
1: yeah, there's deep sexual tension. Maybe just reviewing hardcore pornography. Who knows? But nevertheless, on behalf of Tian Guignol, I'm Zach Romero. Thank you all for listening and tuning in to Frightful Failures. Continue circulating the tapes. I love this segment. You're so good at it. You? <laughs> You're so fucking good. Kiss me.